All right, well then, welcome to my, uh, I almost said welcome to Mind Games. <laughs> welcome to I to Us. Thank you for everyone. Again, we are in our last session. You made it all eight weeks. It was a stretch, but you, uh, but you made it, and I'm, uh, I'm glad that you were able to spend time here with me. Tonight, I'm going to give you way more information than you bargained for. Um, as I prepared for this lesson, I was like, mm, this one probably should have been two sessions or maybe even three. So I'll do my best to get you all the information, not speak too quickly as I'm prone to do. And then I'll send you some good notes after we're done so that you can have it for anything that you most likely are going to miss because I'm most likely going to speak too quickly. All right. So let's ask God for his help. And then we're going to jump into session eight, the L word. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and for your son for the finished work on the cross. Uh, thank you so much for loving me, Lord, for loving us and, and all the ways that that looks. Father, I just pray that you, as we take time to spend over your word, that you'd be honored and glorified in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray and we're thankful. Amen. Well, as you probably have guessed, the L stands for love. We're talking about love today. And this is probably gonna be the first time for in all 16 weeks of workshops that I'm actually not gonna wear a therapist hat today. I'm gonna just be a preacher tonight. And because I think that what God has to say on this subject is comprehensive enough, and I think we're gonna learn some great things from it. So as we talk about the concept of love, let's define love. So love defined is by Oxford, an intense feeling of deep affection or a great interest and pleasure in something. Now, um, my position on love is that love is not an emotion. It's not just an a intense feeling or a great interest. Of course, those things can bolster love, but they are not the culmination of love. I believe that love is a choice, right? Love is a choice that, that we take, that we make, that you can give, that you can rescind, right? Just because you choose not to love someone anymore does not mean that you never loved that person. It just means that you're taking your choice back. Or you're using your choice and deciding that you're not going to bestow it anymore and all of those different things. And so as we wrap up this series, I want us to be able to have a good comprehensive look at love. And so what I want to do is look at the biblical forms of love. The Bible uses five different words for love, right? And so unless you've read love or lust, you're not going to know that these different words are there unless you um, are under looking at it from the original language. And so in different parts of the Bible, they use these different words and they mean something different. So I want to give those to you today as we take time looking at the biblical forms of love. So first, phileo. Phileo. Phileo refers to a deep, affectionate love, often translated as brotherly love or friendship. It represents the love and affection between friends or family members. What city do we have named after this form of love? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And it's named after this concept. Okay? Our next word is eros. Eros is the Greek word for romantic or erotic love. The New Testament does contain passages about marriage and sexual love, emphasizing the importance of love and fidelity within that context. Okay? Our next word is porneia. It's a term used in various passages in the New Testament to refer to sexual immorality or unlawful sexual conduct. It generally encompasses a range of sexual sins, including adultery, 
fornication, prostitution, and other forms of sexual impurity. What word do we get from porneia? Pornography, right? Our fourth word is storge. Storge. Storge refers to natural affection, such as the love between parents and children or within families. It's a deep, instinctual love that can also extend to other bonds, like love for one's culture or country. Okay, so, so far we've seen phileo, which is a brotherly love, right, that we have as a deep affection, brotherly love or friendship. I think about Jonathan and David, right, phileo. Then we have eros, which is more of like your intimate, your romantic form of love. We have porneia, which is the perversion of lust, as God, of love as God created it. Then we have storge, which is more of like that friend love. Not friend love, sorry. It's that parents and child love, Philadelphia, or phileo is the brotherly love. But storge is that love that I have for my Rowan. Okay? And then fifth is the word agape, which you might have already guessed was going to make the list. Agape is often considered the highest form of love in the New Testament. For God so agape the world. It signifies selflessness unconditional and sacrificial love. It is the kind of love that God has for humanity and that believers are encouraged to have for each other. So although there are benefits to phileo and eros and storge, right? Agape is what you and I should be striving for, romantic relationship or not. Okay? So how does God model love for us. How does God model love for us? In making us in his image. A couple of these things we've talked about last week, but I thought they'd be good refreshers. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. We said last week, last week that the word image translated to, to shade or a phantom or of a, of a resemblance, a representative figure. We said that likeness meant to resemble or to concretely model. So we derived last week that God made you after himself. God made you to be a model of who he is. He made you to represent him with your person. So as we look at how God loved us, he made us to be an image of who he is. Right? He, made, he made us to model for himself. He gave us sovereignty over creation. He, gave, he created both male and female to be those representatives. To be the representatives. It's interesting. I know I talk about Rowan a lot, but Rowan in her physical form is a conglomeration of me and her mother, right? And so you, you know how it is when you look at a, at a child and you're trying to figure out who they look like more and you begin to pick it apart. Oh, he has your nose or she has your eyes or she's got your little Kalea. I should have, oh, I wanted to do it. I saved it. I have this little picture of Kalea when she was a baby and she has this little cute little acorn head. I love it, right? And Rowan definitely has her little acorn head. Um, Gorgeous, love it. But we look at it and we pick it apart, right, to see who they look like. And God has created us not to physically look like him, but his essence, his person, right, to represent him. Okay, and God loved us that much that he made us in his image. 
How else does God model love for us? He showed it when we disgraced that image. He showed love to us when we disgraced that image. And I've learned that as I've, done, uh, as I've worked through this series, I've always found a point that was my favorite point. And this one is my favorite point um, in this study this week. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Commended or to commend means to set together, to introduce favorably, or to exhibit or to constitute. All right? Commend, right? Because God commended his love toward us. To set together, to introduce favorably, to exhibit or to constitute. Think about how beautiful it is. For God to gladly and favorably introduce, set, and position us to get together with his love. It's God's love having the position that it's God's love whose pleasure it is to meet our acquaintance. To meet, right? It, it, it lets us know that God set, set up. It's almost like when you set someone up on a blind date, right? God connecting you and I with his love to set to introduce us to to set us in position to know it his love finding it pleasure to meet our acquaintance and then how does he show us this love right i want to introduce you to my love so how do i do it but god commended his love demonstrated facilitated set us together to meet it his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners christ died for us god said hey let me introduce you to love not just figuratively, but love personified in my son. Oh, I don't know how that's not blowing your mind like it does mine. God created love and then introduced us to us to the express image of his person. Wanting us to meet him, meet his love. How does he introduce it to us? By the death of his son for our sins. There is no greater love than that. Wow. How else does God model his love for us? He provided salvation for us. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. John 3.16 It says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Genesis 3.15 is also known as the Proto-Evangelium. The Proto-Evangelium, it's the first glimpse that we get in the Bible of the gospel. And we see the promise of the eventual victory over sin, right? The Bible lets us know that uh, he will bruise his head and he will bruise his heel, right? So we see that what's going to happen is Jesus is going to put a really big dent in the devil's plan, right? When he died, goes to the cross. Hey, we're partying. Woo! We destroyed the Messiah. Woo! But then when they weren't prepared for him to rise again, right? Sunday came. Right? And so it put a big blow. But the, the serpent was going to bite his heel, meaning that it was going to wound him, but only temporarily. That's why the Bible says, oh, death, where is thy sting? Right? And so God showing that love for us by providing salvation for us. John 3, 16, right? In that God says that the mark of a true friend the Bible says that greater love hath no man than this, that a man will lay down his life for his who? Anyone know it? That you would lay down your life for your who? For your friends. And Jesus took it a step further and died for his enemies. 
died for his enemies. God shows the ultimate sacrifice and demonstration of love by allowing his son to go to the cross, to bankrupt heaven. The gift of salvation is available for whoever seeks it, and the promise is that there's eternal life in God through Christ Jesus. What's interesting is that in my devotions, I just got done wrapping up the book of Leviticus and reading the Bible through chronologically with some friends, right? And we look at it, and there are 633 laws. That's a lot. And as I read it, the purpose of the law was not so that you and I could keep the law, but was to show us that you and I were in need of a savior. So Jesus makes this airtight contract that your life is signing on the dotted line. Hey, my name is Xavier. I'm a sinner and I deserve an eternal hell. Thank you so much. And then Jesus comes back. The lawyer that we have, our advocate, comes back around and becomes the loophole in the contract. And not only sees that this punishment and says, yes, he deserves death. But then he says, okay, lay it to my charge. Lay it to my charge. I'm going to take Xavier's sin to the cross with me. Huge deal. Very powerful. This promise is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How else does God model love for us? He desires for us to receive that free gift. To receive that free gift. I don't have it here, but Romans 6.23 says, but, uh, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 3.17 says this, for God said not his, and what we do is we, we read verse 3.16 of John and we're like, oh my gosh, that verse is so popular. Tim Tebow put it under his eyes. He's so famous, right? But verse 17 is just as powerful. Verse 16, for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Big deal. Big deal. So he didn't come to condemn. He come to save. The Bible says that Jesus didn't come to, to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, to pay it in full. And that was what sets you free. Big deal. Big deal. I hope that we're, that we're catching this because we're, God is, what we're seeing so far is that God jumped through a lot of hoops to show you and I that he loves me, that he loves you. Big deal. It gets better. We see in 2 Peter, verses three, verse three, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. He is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The word slack means to delay or to tarry. So God is intentional about his promise. Some men may slack, some men may delay, some men may tarry. And as I was reading, as I was preparing for this and reading over my notes today, I couldn't help but think about Lazarus. Because Jesus did delay. He did tarry on purpose. The Bible lets us know that he got the news about Lazarus and he waited two days before he decided to take the, the trip back to Bethany. But he says, for you and I, I'm not slack concerning my promise. There is no tarrying. There is no delay. I am intentional about this love and this promise that I have for you. The word long-suffering means to be long-spirited, to be forbearing, or to be patient. In his patience, check this out. In his patience, God waits for us to love him. But check this out, because we can't, this is why we have to slow down when we read our Bible. 
I'm getting, if I had a tail, I would wag it, I swear. Right? Okay, 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 I'm excited. The word of God gets me excited. Okay, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He's not going to delay. He's not going to tear you. You follow me so far, right? As some men count slackness, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what we find out is this. God is not slack concerning his promise, but he is patient to us when we are. Oh, he is patient to us that when we are. I'm not sure about you guys, but how many of us got saved as, as an adult? You got saved at 18 or, or, or older, 25, 30. What, how old? 33. And God did not allow you to meet a demise before then. I'm not sure about you, but that's patience. But that's patience. He says, I'm not slack concerning my promise. But I know that you're a stiff-necked people. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And I'm going to wait for you. Wow. I'm getting emotional thinking about it. Because I know that Xavier Small does not deserve that kind of love and does not deserve that kind of grace. God said, I'm not slack concerning my promise. Even when you are. How does God demonstrate his love toward us? Model it for us. He sent his comforter when we crucified his son. Are we looking at the progression here? Oh, wait, I'm going to wait till we get done. I'm going to wait. I don't want to spoil it for you. I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to spoil it. Can y'all tell I'm excited? I'm carrying the energy for the room tonight, I see. I know it's Wednesday, people, but wake up. We're talking about the Lord. All right? He sent his comforter when we crucified his son. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, capital C, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Verse 13. How be it when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. This is how transparent Jesus is. It is expedient. I tell you, he says, I tell you, let me make sure I say it right. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go. Jesus said, if I'm being honest and transparent, it is to your benefit that I go to the cross. If I'm being selfless, it is better for you that I go to the cross. And you might say, why? Why would you say that, Jesus? That's crazy. He says, because I'm going to send my comforter. The word comforter translates to an intercessor, a consoler, an advocate, a guide, and a teacher. Jesus said in John 14 that he would not leave them comfortless. He says, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to come back to you. So what, here's what Jesus ended up doing. Jesus said, I'm, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, right? He told the disciples, and lo, I am with you even unto the end of the world. And that's why it's important to read your Bible, because you can't claim promises that you do not know. So Jesus told them, I'll never leave you for, or forsake you. Lo, I am with you even unto the end of the world. And then you went to the cross and you died on me? And then you resurrected and you came back only for a little bit and then you left on me again? What kind of promise is that? The comforter. The comforter. Because check this out. Jesus was omniscient and omnipotent, but he wasn't omnipresent. He was a man. But guess who is omnipresent? His spirit. God the Father. But his spirit, who in the Bible lets us know, indwells you and I and grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby we are sealed until the day of redemption. I'm giving y'all scripture today, y'all. 
sealed with the Holy Spirit, which means that if you can raise your hands and say that I am saved and I know Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior, what that means is that each and every one of you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He multiplied himself by a billion. He didn't slack on his promise. Wow. Oh, y'all are killing me. You're killing me. This is insane stuff. God is so multifaceted. So multifaceted. Warned us to know it. And, and check this out. He gave it to us after we crucified his kid. Think about the fact that Jesus came to this world to die for the very same people who were going to kill him. Huh? Huh? Oh, my. Church. The comforter. The comforter. Wow, I'm moving on. I'm moving on. I'm moving on. I'm moving on. How does God demonstrate his love toward us? By preparing a place for us. Preparing a place for us. John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself and that where I am, there you may be also. Looking out for us, preparing us, promising us. Wow. Wow. How does God model his love for us? Because he's, he's coming again. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, it says 5 on your paper, but it's 4.16. says this, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So let me get this straight. Let me get this straight, because y'all didn't realize it, but I just painted this gorgeous picture for you. You didn't even catch it. I'm going to break it down for you. So God loves us, and he, make, he makes us in his image, right? Watch this. He makes us in his image. Then he demonstrates love for us when we blew it. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate you. Right? Then he provides salvation for us. By the way, before all of it even happened, God in his foreknowledge had art. Man, let me stop. Oh. So he made us in his image. He showed us love while, after we disgraced that image. Thanks, Adam. Provided the salvation for us sacrificially through Christ. He desires for us to have a free gift. And that gift coming through his son, we kill his son. He says, all right, I'm going to send you the comforter, right? He sends us the comforter while his son goes to prepare a place for us in my father's house and many rooms, many mansions, my father's mansion, whatever it is, a lot of space up there apparently, right? He's going to prepare a place for us. In the meantime, the comforter is coming into us, speaking in us, guiding us, teaching us. And then he's going to come back again and come get us. What? God's plan the entire time, in his foreknowledge, knowing that he was going to let you and I make the choice of whether to love him or not, knowing that we as a human, as a species, as a whatever we are, we're going to choose not Jesus. He already had a plan to get us back to walking with him in the cool of the day like Adam. God, church! That's a big deal. Oh, if we look throughout biblical history, Jesus, God taking his time to say, I'm going to put you in a place of unconfirmed holiness. I'm going to give you a chance to confirm that holiness. You chose the fruit. Oh, you chose wisdom from other masters instead of me. You're going to live this life. I'm going to send my son. You're going to kill him. I'm going to send my comforter. He's going to keep you. My son's going to come back after preparing a place for you, and I'm going to get you back to Eden anyway. That's love, y'all. That's love. Can we see that? Here. Can we see that trajectory? 
That's insane. That is a lot of love. Man, people in my life will aggravate me one or two times and I'm finished. I'm through. But God in eternity past knew that most of us were not going to choose him and died for us anyway. Scripture says that he would leave the 99 for the one. Leave the whole flock for you. The whole thing for you. I firmly and wholeheartedly believe that if I was the only sinner on the planet, Jesus would have still died for me. Wow. Agape. Wow, y'all. Wow. The L word, how do you spell, how do you spell love? J-E-S-U-S. Come on. We don't need no therapist junk for that. We're talking about what God, the, the, the founder and express person, the physical manifestation of love that you and I get to be beneficiaries of us. Of. Come on. Big deal. Can y'all tell I'm excited? I'm excited. I'm excited. Because I was in tears making this lesson because I knew that I was so undeserving of it. Because I know that I blow it every day. And, I, and as I was thinking about this, I was praying. And I was in the middle of, the, of preparing the lesson. And I had to stop and say, God, thank you for being consistent even when I blow it. Most of us blew it today in some fashion. And he's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord. I change not. And when Xavier drops the ball, God does not. He is not slack concerning his promise. He's not. So how does God want us to show love to others? How does God want us to show love to others? What I want to do is I want to just read you an excerpt from the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. It says, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I have become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and although I have faith, I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So verse one, doesn't matter what kind of gifts you got. Number, verse 2, does, or, or, uh, same thing, doesn't matter what kind of gifts you got. Verse 3, doesn't matter what you do. If you don't have love, you don't have jack. That's that. I didn't even play in the rhyme. That just happened. Verse 4, charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. It's not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. I believe that 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 we have right there is the formula that God gives us to be able to know how we are supposed to love those around us. And so what I want to do is I want to take a second to just kind of dissect some of these words that we see here. Up front, he lets us know that love supersedes our giftings, our gifts, our love supersedes our faith, love supersedes our sacrifice. That if you don't have love, you can do all, you can be the best Christian in the world, I'm not sure how without love, but I digress. 
You can go to church and do all the things. You can be the best mom or dad or, or spouse or partner or whatever you are. But if you don't have love, you don't have anything. Love supersedes your gifts, your giftings, your abilities, your sacrifice. And though he said, how does God want us to love, show love to others? First, by being patient. By being patient. Verse 4 says, charity suffereth long. Charity being tra- translated to love. And that love being agape love. It's patient. The King James says, suffereth long. It mean, forbearing means to be tolerant, easygoing, showing restraint. Has your love been patient toward others? Has your love been patient toward others? Or does your love have boundaries? I love you until you... Love is patient. The long, word long-suffering, to be patient in spite of troubles especially caused by other people. How can we be impatient when God is long-suffering toward us? Right? He's not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is patient when I am not. He waited for me when I was not willing to wait on him. Shoot, I've been saved 19 years since last week, made 19 years that I've been saved. And there's a lot of times that I failed God. A lot of times that I reneged on my love. A lot of times that I was not patient with God. He says, how does he want you to show love to others? Be patient, but also be kind. Be kind. The word kind translates to showing oneself useful. Benevolently. It means well-wishing at its root. Have you, been, have you wished well on others or have you been mean and cutting down? Hmm? Serving charitably rather than making a profit. What does this mean? When love is kind, it is wishing well of others and showing them in action, in an action form, when it means that you may not benefit. That's what benevolence is, is to demonstrate kindness to others when you may not get kindness in return. A lot of our love is circumstantial. I love you until you, and if you are not kind to me, I will not be kind to you. But kindness translates to showing oneself useful benevolently. Will you choose to be kind even when you don't benefit? How does God expect us to love others? By not being envious. By not being envious. The word envy here, that's in, here in verse 4. We saw that. Charity suffereth long, is kind, it envieth not. The word envy here translates to zealous or zeal. What word does that sound like? Zealous. Zealous, right? Zealous. Which, meal, which means to be in heat, to adore, or in a, passionate, in a passionate or favorable sense. It also means jealous as in being someone's husband. Really interesting. Right? And we always said that jealousy at its root is not bad, right? Remember that? Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Crowder sings it. He is jealous for me, right? That's Bible. We read it, okay? But envy is jealousy on steroids. It includes resentment, bitterness, and discontentment. Can we see how envy can strangle love? Envy can strangle love. It's a passionate zeal placed in a negative connotation. You cannot be demonstrative of love and envy someone at the same time. It won't work. Not when envy is rooted in bitterness, 
and resentment and discontentment, those don't look like love to me. It's a reflection of internal struggles and turmoil that is finally manifesting itself outwardly. Okay? And so when you get to the point where, it ex where it's external, there's nothing positive or loving about it. Because when you become envious of someone or love so or of someone that you quote-unquote love, the relationship is in jeopardy, and the only way to salvage it is repentance and transformation that comes with knowing Jesus Christ. How else do we show love to others? By not bragging? By not bragging? This is the last part of verse 4. It says... Charity vaunteth not itself. The word vaunteth, to vaunt, means to pierce through or to breach through the other side, to impale, right? To impale, to brag, to parade, to flaunt. But it says to vaunteth not itself, expressing an absolute denial, meaning adverbially as in boasting not. So what we can take away from this is that love absolutely does not brag. It absolutely does not because if it does, it pierces through. It's beyond love. It goes to the other side, meaning it takes things too far. And when you brag about who you are or how you are or what you do, it's not love. It goes too far. It's beyond love. There are other motives. There are ulterior motives. Braggadocious people don't think about love because love is sacrificial. A love that brags is not pointed to the other person. Who is it pointed to? Yourself. Just like impatience is about you. Unkindness is about you. Envy is about you. Bragging is about you. Love isn't about the demonstrator. It's about the object that it's demonstrated in. God thought you and I were worth it. Was worth it. It doesn't go, love, it doesn't, it doesn't take us to a place where it goes too far. If love is not the only reason that you engage with that person in that way, then it's not going to work. Because any other reason than agape or the pursuit of agape is going to be selfless, selfishness. Not being prideful. How does God want us to love others? By not being prideful. The King James here says, puffed up, puffeth not itself. Let me see it. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. The word puffed up means growth by germination or expansion. What? Growth by germination or expansion, meaning an infestation. Also natural production of, of lineal descent, meaning straight down. So we see it, now we, we can look at that and say, okay, at, at its core, it's germinating, right? It's expanding, but it's more. To germinate, to sprout, to produce, to spring up. And the final word in that was to inflate, to be proud or to be haughty. So pride in love is like a seed that plants and sprouts up. It spreads like an infestation in a linear fashion, straight up, straight down to the core. Pride spreads, and the capacity for love dramatically decreases. Decreases. Haughty means a state of superiority. Compliments being boastful. Vaunting is to brag. It's an action. Pride is internal. It's where bragging comes from. So we look at this, and we see that the opposite of, pa of patience is impatience. The opposite of kindness is unkindness. 
the, opi- the, op- uh, the opposite of envy and braggadocious and, and, and pride, all of those things, those are dark reflections of who we are in self instead of who we are in Jesus. We can see so far that as we break down just two verses from this passage is that if we are not walking in the kind of love that God demonstrated toward us, the only person who will be loved on is ourself. Is ourself. What does God want? Not to not, he wants us to not be unattractive. Now hear me out before I say this. The word agape here, because we see this in verse 5. Love does not behave itself unseemly, meaning unattractively. You ever heard the expression, you were acting ugly? You ever heard that expression before? Anybody from the South? What are the Southerners? Okay, there we go. You're acting ugly. That's what that means there. Acting ugly, behaving itself unseemly. It means to behave, un- uh, to behave uncomingly or unattractively or unbecomingly. Used in the sense of a union. At the root, it means to hold in the realm of possession. So we juxtapose that to the word schema, which talks about an external fashion or shapelessness. And so all that to say is that if we act in that way, it is an un 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 Aaron, 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 Aaron. All that to say that unseemingly means unelegant, inelegant. Love does not behave itself without couth or unfashionable or without infrastructure. Love behaves like it's love. Like it's love. Because when we, when it behaves itself unseemly, it's out of control, it's not elegant, it's not pretty, it's not nice, it's not structured. It's like if Queen Diana, Princess Diana, went to the uh, restaurant and they put spaghetti and meatballs in front of her and instead of using her fork, she just used her nice white gloves and just dug in and just started stuffing her face. There's nothing elegant about that. You're a princess, act like it. You're royalty, act like it. You're a child of the king, act like it. A joint heir with Christ, act like it. Strangers and pilgrims of this world, act like it. Love does not behave itself that way. It doesn't. Does your love look like love or is it shapeless and without infrastructure, frail and brittle, unrecognizable? Love done right is attractive. It draws others when it looks like Christ and it's compelling and it's beautiful. That's why a soft answer turns away wrath. Because when you meet anger with love, love wins every time. It wins every time. How does God want us to show love to others? We're almost done. By not looking out for self. By not looking out for self. Verse 5 again. It says, does not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. It means, that phrase means to require or to inquire about information. To seek or to worship in a negative sense. To plot against. True love isn't going to look out for itself. It's going to look out for others. Everything about true biblical love is sacrificial. Not only are we to love outwardly, but we are to love ferociously. 
Love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Love your neighbor as yourself. You love your wife the way that you love yourself. Those passages. A man will lay down his life for our friends. Christ dying on the cross for our sins. All of those, all of those are fierce, ferocious, fervent, sacrificial love. What about dying for someone that's selfish? Nothing. Nothing. All of these passages show us that when love is done properly, executed properly, it's going to look like Christ. Does your love have weight behind it? Love is not easily annoyed. How are you supposed to love people? By not being so annoyed so easily? Verse 5, seeing it's not her own, it's not easily provoked. It's not easily provoked. In the King James, it says provoke. That word means to accuse, to appoint, sharp, swift, and to exasperate. Ooh. To accuse, to appoint, sharp, swiftly, and to exasperate. It carries the idea of being poked. You guys remember, who, who was on Facebook when it first came out? Around the time, you had that poke option. Like, what are you poking me for? What does that even mean? Does my girlfriend know you poking me? Right? It's not, it's, it's not the idea of, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. It's that easily annoyed, very quickly, ties in with being patient. Right? You can't be so quick to be annoyed when you love. Because guess what? People are going to rub you the wrong way. There are going to be misunderstandings. And your short fuse is going to get in the way. And it's going to allow people to get on your last nerves all the time. Biblical love, biblical love says that benevolent love that you've been given will not wane. It stands firm. It's loving the unlovable. It's loving when it's not easy. It's loving practically. It's not easily provoked. Sharp to a point. We're almost done. Love doesn't think evil things. You love someone, not going to think evil things. This is my favorite part of this, of this portion. Right? Verse 5. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. There are several words that, that outline the word thinketh. The first word in the root means to lay forth, to relate in a systematic way. Our second word is something said thoughtfully and by reason, computed or properly calculated. So we see that it's happening, it's calculated, it's thoughtful, it's computed, it's calculated. The third word, to take inventory. Okay? So that's what we, that's what we get when we think. It says thinketh. To systematically think, to lay forth, to calculate. Alright? So it's intentional. But, but then it says no evil. There's three words or four words for this one as well. Evil was, no evil translates to starving, to toil for daily... To toil for in anguish, in anguish or in pain, and to do so in a hurtful in effect or influence. The fourth one was to find internally worthless. I'm going to break those down again for you. When it says, thinketh no evil, that phrase, no evil, means to toil for daily, to toil, right? You're, you're working hard for it. To toil in anguish or pain, to hurt in effect or influence. And to find internally 
worthless. That's what it means. So when we break that down, love does not take, let me stop. Love does not systematically lay out ways to cause one to labor or toil in hurt because you internally find them worthless. What? I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it again. Thinketh no evil. When we look at all of the words that make up that definition, we had seven of them that the, that the Bible uses for that expression. When you put them all together, love does, thinketh no evil, but love does not systematically lay out ways to cause someone pain, to labor or toil in hurt because you internally find them worthless. What does that mean? Is that you are willing to hurt and do so even if it hurts you because you don't have a high level of worth for the person. I'm willing to hurt me in the process to hurt you. That's what it means to think evil. Systematically lay out an approach to hurt someone on purpose. To structurally calculate. When you did that thing, on, when you did that, thing that you know was going to push their buttons and make them upset, you thought evil. Because you knew that that thing was going to hurt their feelings. You knew that that thing was going was to tear them down. You knew that that thing was going to cause an issue. You knew that that was going to hit them right where it hurts. You thought that through. You organized and concocted a plan to demonstrate hurt for them. But remember what we talked about with intimacy. As if my wife is not good, then guess who's also not good? Hello, Xavier, dummy. It hurts you too. It hurts you too. But sometimes when we get to thinking evil about others, we are willing to hurt ourselves in the process to hurt someone else. And in what universe is that wise? I'm not sure about you guys, but I don't like pain. I don't like to be hurt. We can't think evil things if we're going to love someone. So then it takes a, then it takes a, a, a turn, right? It turns the tide. Just a little bit. Because it doesn't rejoice in sin. That's what it says here. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity. Rejoiceth means to be full of cheer, calmly, happy, or well off. That's when you go, serves them right. I took pleasure. And that that got what you got. Anybody ever had someone, especially here in Maryland, you're driving and they're riding your bumper? And so I don't want to get into an altercation. So I just, the other day, I just pulled over to the other lane and let her pass. And she sped off, couldn't even see her. And I got down the road and guess what happened? Friendly neighborhood officer was waiting for her right at the corner and pulled her over. And y'all know what you do. Mm-hmm. That's what you get. Right? Serves you right. You don't do that to people you love. When someone who you, who you, I'm thinking about someone right now that I've been trying to guide and direct to do, the, do something that's going to benefit the person in a way that's, that they haven't been exploring before. And they chose the antithesis and I knew that if they did that, it was going to break their life apart and it's doing that in real time. And because I love this person, I'm not happy about that. I told you so it doesn't feel good when you love the person. 
right? I'm not going to rejoice in the person's hurt. The word iniquity means legal injustice, moral wrongness, unrighteousness or wrong. Legal injustice, lack of fairness. Love doesn't rejoice when someone is treated unfairly. If something happens to you, it's not right. It is not valuing of me to be full of cheer when someone is taken up in a fall. As a matter of fact, Scripture says the opposite. If, if any of among you be taken up in a fall, you with our, which are religious, receive such a one. Receive such a one. We're so quickly to just say, you know, oh well. How can we love people and, def- and definitively rejoice when someone has done wrong? That moral wrongness that's there. The unrighteousness that they show. But in the, on the other side of things, love rejoices in truth. Love rejoices in truth. Look in verse 6. It says, rejoiceth not in, in, in iniquity, but, that's that, cult, that, um, that conjunction there, comma, but, rejoiceth in truth. Rejoice means, again, to be full of cheer, calmly happy or well-off, truth, non-concealing, non-concealing. What is truth? The truth is that Jesus saves. The truth is that the gospel is available to all. The truth is that God's will is for all to be saved. The truth is that God is still in the people-changing business. The truth is that there is no condemnation in Jesus. The truth is that God is a God of legal justice. The truth is that God is a God of moral rightness. The truth is that God is the embodiment of righteousness. And in all truth, you and I should rejoice. Not in wrong. Not in lies. Not to mock sin or the people in it. But when people live like that, contrary to Christ, what it should do is grieve us. When the people in our lives are not doing the right thing, they are straying from God, they're not living the, the way that God would want them to live, to honor and glorify Him, that should break our hearts. Because we love them too much to rejoice in their sin. We don't say, serves you right. We position ourselves to be able to reach into them in the fire where they're at because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. But when we think about love, I'm going to just fly through these. It says, love bears all things. To roof over or to cover with silence. To roof over or to cover with silence. A protecting agent that says, it's okay, we don't even have to talk about it. I got you. We're okay. We're all right. To roof over as a thatch or a deck of a building, a roof. Love is a covering agent. First Peter 4 says love covers a multitude of sins. But it also believes all things. It's prone to believe. To convince by argument. To persuade by moral conviction. To have faith in, especially as it pertains to truth and reliance on God's word. Love tries to convince by arguing and providing moral conviction to have the truth set for your well-being in Christ. Big deal. It believes all things. It hopes all things. Hope means to anticipate with pleasure, to expect or to confide in. Love is genuinely positive. It doesn't hope with evil, but with pleasure and good. It's something you expect or confide in. Does your love expect the best out of others? Expect the best out of others. 
You know what my philosophy is? I don't lower my expectations. I'm a, I'm a person with high standards all the time. All the time. But if someone doesn't rise to my standards, I don't say, well, you know what? There's no, it's no worth, there's no worth in, in having high expectations. What I do instead is I adjust my expectations to the person. If I am an eight ounce cup and that person is only a five ounce beverage, what I have to do is I have to be able to say, okay, all they can offer me is a five and that's fine. But if they are only a five and I want them to match me at an eight, it's going to frustrate me. It's going to strain the relationship for something that they cannot change. They cannot offer me more than they have. And that ends up happening to us. Do we hope all things? Love endures all things. To place under or beneath. To stay in a given place, state or relation or expecting to stay under, bears trials, to have fortitude or to preserve. Love doesn't give up. It's going to endure. Love is willing to endure. Cancel culture has completely corrupted us. We don't fight for the people that we love or the things that we care about. Well, I don't like that. I don't like him. I don't like her. Bye, 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 bye. And you're going to find that nothing that is worthy of love is going to come easy. There are going to be moments when there is struggles and despair. It abides. It endures. Patiently suffers and lags behind. Love, love, true love will stretch it out. How can you love someone that you are so willing to give up on? And Oxford tried to tell me that love was about intense feelings and emotions. Love is sacrificial. It's multifaceted. I want y'all to take this and I want you to go back and I want you to, I want you to read it again. I want you to listen to it again. Right? I know I, I know I gave us a lot of information just now. But the point of it is this. Is that love is going to require sacrifice. Love exists in a lot of different forms. But unless we seek to love like God loves us, we're not going to be able to think for everyone. Love is a motivator behind going from I to us or from me to we. And if I don't do that, if I don't develop a philosophy to look at them from a place of love, that agape love, we don't stand a chance. We don't stand a chance. Because whether your love is phileo, brotherly, whether your love is storge, familial, family-wise, or whether it's any other form, it has, you have to realize that there's going to come a point where you are going to have to dig through the trenches for it to work. That doesn't mean that love is always difficult, but to manage it. Someone said this, falling in love is easy, but building it takes patience. Falling in love is easy, but it's the work that you put in that takes time, it takes effort, it takes energy. Anyone can use the emotional stuff. She's pretty, duh. I see why you fell in love with her. He's handsome, I get it. See why you fell in love with him. That's your kid. I get it. I see why you would love him. That's your mom. I can see why you love her. But that's surface level. Any relationship of any caliber is going to require dedication and determination and sacrifice and blood and sweat and tears. But the goal is that when you go through all of those different things, on the end of it is the harmony that you're looking for. 
You don't think that loving and relationships are hard? Should be hard? Look at the picture that I just painted for you about Jesus Christ. About all the hoops God jumped through to get us back to Eden. If you missed that, you got to start this whole thing over and listen to it all over again. Because love is going to come with a cost. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and for your son. For sending him down the cross for our sins. Thank you so much for the privilege of being able to teach this series. Of being able to have people who wanted to know how to love themselves and love others better. So that we can be good stewards of the relationships that you've put in our lives. God, we ask for your power as we walk out of here trying to be the best version of ourselves for you and for others as possible. We'll give you all the honor and glory for it all. In Jesus' name we pray and we're thankful. Amen.